Hey guys, we're back. As usual, I'm Mehul Rastogi from India and Avrat is in Atlanta. We hope all of you are looking forward to the amazing summer ahead. Today, we have an amazing charismatic personality with us. Dikube is a professor of computer information systems at Georgia State University who re- whose research focuses on open innovation and collaboration in large-scale collectives. He is also an angel investor whose investing thesis emphasizes on founders who develop or utilize technology to to tackle society's biggest challenges. He was also an angel investor on PropelX, an online platform to invest in deep tech startups. He has also been a visiting professor at many top institutions all across the world. It's a pleasure to have you, Dikube. How's it going? How's your week been? Good to meet you both. Thank you, uh, Mehul and uh, Avirath. I'm really glad to be here. It's been a wonderful week. We are in that uh, transitional period in academia when semester is winding down uh, or has wound down in terms of classes and uh, grades and exams and those types of things. And we're wrapping up with um, summer research activities and uh, summer conferences and workshops. So uh, needless to say, I've been doing quite a bit of reading of uh, academic research, but very excited. That, that sounds great. And I really wish you all the best for the academic season winding down. So state of the bat, you as a professor, there's one thing that I've got to ask. So as a part of the education system, how do you view traditional education systems? Uh, what I mean is that often there's been talk about moving to mod- models like OnDeck and Lambda School, where you learn only relevant skills, or I'd say rather focus skills, instead of the whole package that college brings. And this is a model that's getting very popular. And it's becoming popular through entrepreneurship as well. So what do you think about such models? What's your take on it? That's a great question. So, you know, having seen it from both sides, right, both as a student and then um, actually being part of the institution, right, um, of higher learning, I'd have to say that there are a few key trends that have emerged that I think really require a rethinking of the model for education, right? I think one big one, obviously, is the modality itself. That is, there was a time when it made sense that you would have a central location for a physical location for students to come to get their education, right? So if you had the instruct, all the instructors at the university, it made sense that the students would come from wherever they are to the central location to get their education. But as technology, particularly communication technology has matured, you know, that model doesn't make sense in the same way, at least as far as the main mission of the institution is, uh, which is the education, right? So in terms of the physical footprint itself, this model of having students physically come to the institution, um, I think in many ways kind of limits the range of uh, students who can be can be touched um, and who can access that education. And so I think that aspect of it definitely does need to be rethought. You know, academic institutions are 
very slow to change, right? So you sort of think about these verticals that are very um, quite rigid, right? So academia would be one of them. I'd say uh, the legal profession would be the other, and then uh, healthcare is the other big one, right? Those ones are just very, very difficult uh, to change. Uh, but to their credit, I do think that institutions having recognized that things have changed, have been trying to make some moves within the broader kind of structures that uh, that have emerged around academia. And I can think of or can point to two of those, right? I think the first one would be an increasing shift towards um, away from the sage on the stage model of education, right? So professor gets up there and lectures for an hour, two hours, and just talks basically a monologue of sorts, right, to uh, more of this theme of uh, flipping the classroom, right? That is, if you're going to build on this model um, of having students actually physically come to campus to the central location, it better be for something that's much more than you just standing on the stage talking. That value proposition just does not work. Right. And so this flipping the classroom so that the in-classroom time is actually devoted towards engaging in meaningful activities, more of a dialogue, actually makes much more of a difference. Right. So the, the, the value proposition is much clearer there that students in that environment are getting much more of an interactive experience. They're actually spending that time on campus solving problems. And the ability to really kind of rewire those neurons in the brain as part of the learning process uh, really ramps up pretty significantly through that modality. So I think that's the first thing that's happening. Uh, I would say the second thing that's happening is this shift towards actually enabling uh, these degrees to have sort of these online modules, right? So you can have online modules where students can... Um, engage with content uh, digitally, right? Rather than having to be at a particular time in a particular place to be able to access that content on demand. And so I think being, and so that, I think that is happening and that's ramping up. Um, you know, one of the things with this pandemic is that I think it has accelerated that process as it, ha as it has in many other um, uh, domains. And so I think the puzzle from here going out is going to be how do we integrate these different modalities, right? So I, I, I don't think that online alone is going to do it, right? I mean, there are issues there as well in terms of uh, completion and being able to sort of focus attention and then the need for this interactive um, engagement. But I do think being able to couple consumption of online content, which is the communication piece of it, with the actual physical space that can be used, I think, it, as I explained before, with this uh, flipped classroom for problem solving, for deep interactive engagement. I think that's where the big gains are going to come. So that's that, that's my own sense of that, my own perspective on this. Um, I think it's the road ahead is an exciting one, but it's one that is going to require a bit, quite a bit of experimentation. And so, you know, hopefully institutions take courage and do so because I think maintaining the uh, the old way of doing things um, will only, uh, and at least in my mind, ensure uh, a slow but inevitable death for, for academic institutions. Yeah, that makes sense. Because like these days, a lot of startups also and a lot of companies 
also like Minerva and solar schools out of Georgia Tech, they're also tackling this problem where they're trying to like recreate education and how education works. So that you slightly mentioned like the bureaucracy that is present like all across the United States or in all states perhaps uh, is, is a problem for like revolutionizing education because like most of education is in public domain. So what do you think would be good ideas for startups or in, for like aspiring founders, aspiring entrepreneurs to work on? And like, there's definitely a problem that needs to be solved. So what could be a potential solution that that keeping in mind the bureaucracy that is prevalent in the country and like in the respective states? Yeah, so that's a good, that's a good question. Um, you know, I do think this one is going to be uh, a tough nut to, to tackle. Right. Um, so, you know, I've been, th it's interesting you should ask that question. I've been thinking about some aspects of this that I myself have sort of just wanted to automate, right? I think there's just certain things in the running of an institution. You know, you mentioned the bureaucracy that are very um, cyclical, right? It's just, it runs on a particular schedule and th certain things need to be done. And so you wonder at some point, you know, is, are the students who come to the institution best served by having the faculty doing some of these fairly mundane things, right? So these are not things that are necessarily directly related to um, delivering education and delivering, um, you know, knowledge. But there are sort of some, some of the things that are inevitable in sort of running of an institution with all its, you know, departments and unit, different kinds of units and the like. Right, managing budgets, uh, you know, turning in certain reports, running certain processes, and you know these things are coming. So there's, I do have in my mind, at least, would love to see some solution that, for those that really don't change, every year it's the same, right? You know that, you know, every year in May you're going to have to, you know, turn in this report. It has these very specific things that need to be in it. Could that be automated? Right, um, so that the time of the faculty is really sort of spent on the most important mission. I think those opportunities uh, are there to the extent that, um, you know, there are founders who number one can sort of get familiarity with that space, uh, talk to, you know, talk to um, administrators at university institutions, uh, talk to people who are in these positions of needing to sort of run these repeatable processes in the running of an institution, I think many would actually value the time saved by having such solutions in place. I know I certainly would. I'd say one thing that I did pick up and something that I've faced and I'd like to ask you about it is that you said 100% that founders should go and contact such administrators and ask them what are probably pain or pressure points that they face. Right? And one thing that I've faced as a founder myself is when I do some kind of research or just get a hold of how the market is, it does become hard to reach out to the specific people in those markets. So how do you say students go about reaching out these administrators? Is there something that you'd recommend that they do to understand how they can probably change or affect change in this model. Yeah, so, you know, some of this, I think there are kind of two pieces to this, 
right? So I think one is just the main uh, decisions around uh, the point of entry, if you will. That is, who do you, to whom do you talk first? And right, so one is, you know, you could go directly for the administrator, right? Go right to the top level. Um, I, I can, I can see where there'd be some challenges there. Avrath, to your point, right? That is reaching out to them. Uh, these are already busy people, as it is, right? Um, you know, who's going to take on yet one more person who needs one more thing or is asking for one more thing, right? So I think that is definitely a, a difficult uh, road to travel. I will say the other part of it, the other option, right, in terms of approaching this would be from the bottom up, right? So I think rather than going directly to the administrators, if there's some channel for, not that it's 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 easy per se, but perhaps easier talking to uh, faculty at the lower level because they themselves, maybe even if they're not in the role of administrators, have certain sort of cyclical things that they have to attend to through the course of the academic year, right? And so sort of building from the ground up, you can sort of create the pressure from the ground where those needs are and have them sort of bubble up to, you know, going from faculty to say department chair. Department chairs also have these cyclical things, right? And so, uh, and then that bubbles up to, you know, um, administrators within the college, for example, across different areas. So I think that is the other avenue. And the way to do this, obviously, you know, is starting small. So if you can get one or two, I just get a sense of their needs because those needs will, some of those needs will tend to be fairly similar. And then really building out a product that, uh, that meets those needs. You know, if you have on a limited basis, then um, you build sort of that minimal viable product and you're able to get more and more uh, professors on board, if it's, if it's truly adding value, uh, testing this out, I think it's gonna grow on its own and it'll be, in my mind at least, at some point inevitable that uh, administrators at the higher level would, would want to jump in and be on board as well. So yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely some ground hustle to be done there, but I think building from the bottom up will, will definitely be a viable path. Yeah. That makes sense. So like before getting into like shooting the podcast, I was like going over your profile and like what stuff you've done. So your involvement with Propel X gives, gives me an insight that you are interested or perhaps you were interested in like deep tech startups because like you created something that would invest and like really foster engineering and growth. So what do you think about deep tech startups and what, where the industry is going as like to newcomers in the industry and perhaps somebody who is wanting to build something in that space. So I'm really excited. I'm really excited about what's happening in the deep tech space. So a few observations I'll share about that space. I think the first one is naturally it's one as we look at this, the broad startup landscape. Deep tech, I think, is the one where the risk certainly tends to be highest. And I think for that reason, um, if you look at kind of the broad market for investors, it's the one where there tends to be a lot more um, hesitancy, if you will, right, uh, to enter. In many cases, because many cases because you know founders in this deep tech space are essentially building the foundational technologies, right? And so, um, as you look at that space, the question around 
you know, making an investment, particularly at the early stage. So I did, I, I mainly invest in sort of a pre-seed and seed stage. Um, you know, waiting for that technology to be built before you're gonna see, you're gonna see if that investment or that bet pays off is uh, not exactly a very comfortable place to be, right, as an investor. Um, but that, I think that's a lot of what happens with, uh, with deep tech investments, right? Um, you know, I can remember some of the earliest ones that I, that, that, that I invested in. I haven't been very far into this journey, but uh, probably about three, four years in. Uh, but some of the early, earliest investments that I made were, you know, the technology was not, was not really built out at that point. They had, um, you know, some basic, you know, mock-up of how this idea would work. And at that point, you're really kind of taking it on some level of faith, right? That with this funding, they are going to be able to, to do exactly what they say they're going to do. And I think one thing that comes up there that maybe is not as prevalent um, with say, you know, let's just say you're building, you know, a marketplace, for example, right? Um, one thing that does come up is because they're building foundational technologies, you do have these potentially unforeseen uh, technical barriers, right? We, you know, in concept, we said it, were gonna, it was going to be able to do this, but you know, we've run up against this 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 key this key technical barrier, uh, which if we don't solve, the technology is just not going to work, right? Um, and so I think that is something that you do come up against with, uh, with deep tech investing. That said, the reason I love this space, uh, even acknowledging all of that risk, number one is because um, I just love this idea of building foundational technologies. Uh, a lot of the things that I've seen are just mind-blowing to see what, uh, what founders are working on. Um, absolutely fantastic stuff, whether it's in, in, in robotics um, or in, uh, in, you know, ag tech, I love the ag tech space, uh, you know, across a range of uh, domains, just really fascinating things that, uh, that founders are, are building out. And the reason I like that then is because it's foundational, it really is the platform then for other great things that startups might do building on, on that foundational technology. So I really like this idea of deep tech as creating the platform for other founders to do this, to do the work that's gonna tackle kind of the big problems that we face. The second reason I'm really excited about the deep tech space is, um, I mean, let's be frank about it, right? We, we face great challenges as a human race here on this planet, right? Um, and so, I think the deep tech space is really where you're seeing uh, human ingenuity to tackle these very difficult problems. And there are many different approaches to tackling these problems. And I love seeing the very different ways that different founders are thinking about uh, those problems. Um, and it's, and it's just, uh, it's fascinating to watch and it's heartening to see founders actually devote their time and energy and their life's work to actually doing these things. You know, the third one I'll mention that is exciting is I think the broader ecosystem around deep tech itself has, I wouldn't say it's matured, but it has definitely moved forward in a significant way. You know, when you think about the maturation or the emergence of, um, you know, cloud computing and cloud storage, 
right, to manage uh, to manage data and to deploy these systems. When you think about um, you know the Internet of Things, right? Um, when you think about the advancement in uh, in algorithms, I think the opportunity to just kind of put all these things together to envision uh, new deep technologies, I think, has really kind of allowed us to make leaps and bounds in how we tackle some of these problems, right? In a way that I think we're, we're not possible before we had this configuration of these different technologies. So for those reasons, I am, I am very excited. You know, you know, if I sort of mention one of these that I think uh, characterizes precisely why I'm excited about this, um, in this uh, ag tech space, you know, you have quite a few startups that are looking at really facilitating um, not only growing uh, produce, but also picking produce in, uh, you know, controlled environment agriculture or CEA, right? And so in that space, because of these leaps and bounds that have been made, right, you have um, robots, for example, that are using computer vision to recognize when fruits are ripe and ready to be picked and then being able to pick pick them, for example, right, fruits and vegetables, right? That only happens on this scale now because we have cloud technology, right, that enables this vast storage of data, right? We have sort of the big data revolution that we went through that has sort of created all of this infrastructure. We have artificial intelligence, which is old, but it's sort of uh, seen a resurgence because the technology has reemerged, right? And uh, the, the, the supporting technologies have uh, have emerged. And so being able to combine all of that along with robotics is making some of these things possible, right? Um, and that's an exciting prospect. You know, I've just that's just one example, but there are many others could point to that uh, sort of seen come across my desk um, or I've invested in uh, personally uh, to solve some of these big challenges. I'd say that's pretty uh, insightful, actually, because this is the way I look at it. Let's just take Amazon, for example. Today, Amazon has AWS, Amazon Web Services. So what it says, basically, through Amazon Web Services, that we don't want to create individual products. We rather want to be a provider so that you can go ahead and create these very high-tech and deep-tech and super-challenging projects or uh, tech products that you otherwise wouldn't have been able to. And... They're doing very well in that space. Profits are not the idea that I think we're trying to put out there and that Amazon's already done and a lot of other organizations have done very well is that we create something that you can benefit of. We don't want to go and create a niche product, but we create a product that you can create niche products out of. And the idea of that I really like because even if you look at it from a profit perspective from a commercial perspective rather than creating something for a single community or a specific demographic if you're creating for people who are going to jump to that demographic or handle several demographics you're going to profit or you're going to do much better success in terms of monetary success or financial success compared to something that may or may not do as well in a specific area of 
whatever they want to target. Talk yeah, I think you nailed it. I think you nailed it, right? Because in a sense, it is it, it creates this multiplier effect, right? It'd be one thing for Amazon to say, and, and it would be somewhat arrogant, uh, really they're not saying it, right? To be able to say, well, you know, we're going to solve, we're going to, you know, create the solutions that are going to solve all these problems. I mean, Amazon can only hire so many people, right, who are going to focus on those problems, right? I think it takes, it's, it's a different way of thinking to say we're going to, we don't know it all, but there are many, many, I mean, millions more people out there who have much better ideas about how to tackle these problems. Uh, can we, as you pointed out, extend, extend the reach, create this multiplier effect by supplying the foundational technology that enables those other people who are going to go on to identify those solutions? And yeah, some might fail, but you know, uh, others will succeed. And we need, you know, it's, it's really about making a bet on those who will succeed to, to make the difference out there. Yeah, totally. And talking about this multiplier effect, I do think I have to approach uh, the subject of the of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. And I was actually going through Twitter and I found this tweet about that you had about the creator economy and the coding economy, right? And what do you think about the whole NFT? And I saw you talked about NFT and the will come out to promote artists in the near future or in foreseeable future. So where do you see the, that industry going? So I think if it's used, so two things, right? I think number one, we're kind of going, it feels to me at least, as we did with the uh, with the ICO wave, right? We're going through the initial hype cycle, right? Um, and then you wait for the dust to settle. Um, I, and, and once the dust settles, I do think that uh, there will be some actual really good uh, use cases uh, for this, right? And I do think, uh, as you know, you sort of mentioned the tweet, I do think that the opportunities there are really for creators, right, artists and the like, to be able to really capture some of the value that they create um, not only a sort of a one-time transaction, but really to be able to extend uh, the life of what they create or the, the, the opportunity to capture value through the life uh, cycle of what they create. Um, and I think that's important, right? Because, well, number one, artists don't want to wait until they die, right? To be able to, to be, to have the work celebrated and, and, and be valued so much, right? And um, I think it's only right that they should be able to capture that value. I do think the other reason is, you know, if it look at kind of societally at least, you know, what uh, what many are willing and able to kind of, hey, I'm not talking about the big artists that are sort of well-known, but the smaller artists. You know, if we're able to kind of add this up at the smaller level through multiple uh, transactions, I do think that it uh, it really does create opportunities for creators to to capture the value that's that's due to them, right? But in a way that also makes it so that they don't have to you know charge exorbitant prices for their the products that they that they put out there or the work that they put out there um, itself. So I do, I do see great opportunities for artists once you start to see business models sort of come around this in a way that really does um, separate from the hype itself. Yeah. 
So it's an exciting space, but it's 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 hard to say when that point will come. I think, in a sense, we have to kind of wait for that for that dust to settle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Nowadays, a lot of blogs that I've been reading, a lot of Twitter like tweets that I've been reading have started to say like the advertisement economy that is built around creators, around people who have been posting stuff, who have been creating content will slowly and gradually dissolve. It'll be basically because like all these decentralized stuff, all the decentralized stuff that is coming up, everybody is trying to get on a blockchain and create uh, create applications on blockchain. I don't know if you've heard about BitCloud. So everybody is trying to dissolve the advertisement space that was built on creators because like these creators want to earn actual money because like it is their work at the end of the day and they are creating value, which is being monetized by like this, these big services like Google AdSense or perhaps any other uh, multi-million dollar company who is building it. So what do you think about the creator economy? Uh, Greg Eisenberg has been speaking a lot about it lately. So what do you think? How will it transition eventually? Yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, I hesitate to sort of discount uh, advertising because it's been around for so long and it always finds a way to, you know, um, evolve to meet to meet the demands of the moment. Uh, that being said, I do see, um, as, as you're pointing out, uh, a future where, you know, maybe that uh, intermediating role for advertising um, essentially is sort of minimized, at, at, you know, at the very least minimized, right? Where because you're able to sort of create this uh, digital manifestation of what the creator economy is, is creating, um, you have these traces of of its use in, in a digital space throughout, right? And therefore, given that transparency, um, the opportunity for creators to actually monetize definitely visibility into the use of what they put out there in a way that maybe doesn't necessitate uh, this advertising model in the same way as it as as we have it today. So I do see that coming, right? I think generally, if we sort of think about the world of technology as a uh, as as a whole and the story of technology, you know, one of the main storylines has been the story of disintermediation, and I think this will be one more sort of manifestation of that story. No question. I I really think that you know. Especially, a, we're at a crossroads every time a big uh, leap is made in the industry. And I do surely think that as the pandemic has come to end, and uh, which has also coincided with Ethereum and Ethereum-backed applications becoming very popular, I do think we are at such a crossroads where now we are left to understand as to how now we know that this technology exists i think cryptocurrency or not whether this becomes a legal tender a store of value something that is going to exist is the blockchain technology that is not going to go away because that is shown to show that it's been it's safe it's secure global banking systems can possibly adopt it and that just brings to show that how much and what all can we replace i believe with this blockchain technology and when we talk about replacement, obviously it's only going to happen if it's efficient. And I'd ask one thing that, especially since a lot of people are very interested in the space, but a lot of times say that, oh, where do we start from? What is something we can actually go uh, go ahead with to know more about yeah. this space? 
what are things can you just give an example possibly of what do you think how possible listeners should approach this uh area is there any cool resources or anything that you've used or you've read from that have actually brought in your mind and probably inspire you or any kind of listener to work on one of these applications you know that's a good question so two things right so i think i would say just from the standpoint of the education right that's one critical piece uh being able to actually be familiar with how blockchain technology worked what the you know distributed uh ledger technology and the like so i think curriculum wise at uh, at institutions uh that is that had that is i should say it has and it continues to ramp up right so for example at georgia state i mean we have courses where students learn um how to use the technology so and i think uh you know online resources that's one of the great things about uh, the environment we live in today it's just the ability to access uh this knowledge itself is is better than it's ever been in our lifetime as uh, on this planet um so i think that's one piece of it um but i think more broadly then the question becomes you know putting this into into action and i can think of two examples maybe i'll just focus on uh on one without going into too much detail because you know i think the founder is still is still working on this but i encourage you to look him up um so robert hatcher who recently graduated from uh from georgia state um has been using this technology to basically kind of build out um a product called or- origin a u r g i n a g n sorry a u r i g n um within the music industry to essentially say you know how do we use this technology to address the important issue of uh you know the rights of artists musical artists in particular to the content they create uh because a lot of that as he describes so eloquently i think gets left on the table right by especially by independent artists um who have trouble sort of navigating this whole agreements with record labels and then how the work gets used and played and the like and so um he's using this technology to at a very granular level actually account for in any kind of musical collaboration how do you actually attribute in real time the contributions of each artist to that piece right um and so i think that's a fantastic example of somebody who has gone and learned i mean he came in with a great understanding of the music industry and the problems there he didn't necessarily have the knowledge of the technology itself but saw its utility and so he learned um he learned the skills and learned how to utilize uh blockchain and then was able to use it to build up his startup to solve this very specific problem um so you know if you want an example of how you kind of sort of build that uh you know approach and build that solution um from the ground up or that use that technology to solve very specific problems i think his is a great example of exactly how to do that
Yeah, that makes sense. Like a lot of people are trying to plunge into the blockchain space, the cryptocurrency space without actually knowing about like th- there's obviously a technology side size a uh, uh, technology side to all of this but not a lot of people know about the economic side of all of it i was speaking to one of one of the people here at tech and he said like any like if you want to learn the technology side size of like bitcoins and cryptocurrency people can learn it like figure it out but the, the most important aspect of like the blockchain and the cryptocurrencies is like the economics of it like each currency difference yeah. Uh, the difference between each currency is basically the economics the economic values that they are using so what do you think uh is the level of importance that people need to take while learning about blockchain or crypto and learning about the economics of all this and learning about how why why th- these were built or perhaps the tokenomics or such stuff like that yeah so you know a few things there right so i think the first thing i would emphasize um and i think it links directly to the point I made about, uh, you know, Robert Hatcher and origin is as with all of these things, right. Um, there are kind of two ways to approach this, right. There is sort of the classic, you know, uh, have hammer will travel, right. In essence, you have this tool and now you're going to look for every problem, um, for which this tool fits. That's one way to approach it, but I would argue in a way that, then, you know, that's where you kind of get into some of the hype cycle, right? It's like, yeah, this is cool technology that's on the block now. Let's go see what we can do with it. And I think that's a very different approach relative to what founders, whether they're in blockchain or not, just any founder, right? Come in and saying there is a recognized problem. Uh, the one that they've dealt with personally that they want to solve or that they recognize as a problem for many people um, that they know and they want to address that problem and for which blockchain may be a particularly absolute a good solution or fitting solution. Um, I think that's probably the better road to travel, right? Because part of the success of how a startup um addresses a problem, I think is really related to how they formulate that problem, right? how the founder formulates the problem. Anybody, any three people are going to look at the same problem. They're going to come up with very different formulations, right? And therefore the solutions are likely going to be different. And so I think understanding of the problem domain and the key issues is much more fundamental to understanding how one can really then fit in blockchain and then understand the, how the economics fit within the context of the problem that they're trying to address. And I think that's a very different vantage point than saying, oh, okay, you know, I've studied blockchain. I know how to use the technology now. Let me go, let me go figure out some problem, manufacture some problem that, that, that this is going to solve. Um, because then it's sort of, you know, it's almost like you have the blinders on, right? And then, so now every problem you see, you see through the lens of blockchain as opposed to seeing the problem as it is and then seeing blockchain as part of a solution of, you know, in, in, in a sort of a broader range of solutions. So I think that's just one thing that fundamentally is important for founders. Um, so just start with the problem first. You know, this other issue in terms of the, uh, kind of the broader economics, right? Um, so this is part of the thing that's really interesting, right? With, uh, um, Sort of the sort of the blockchain part of this, and then there's kind of the uh, cryptocurrency that's sort of entangled with that, right? 
is that it's sort of this part, uh, you know, fundamental technology that's very meaningful in what it does, but then also part um, there is the economic sort of flat slash uh, finance aspect of this. Um, and I think, you know, the, the startups that are going to do this well, I personally think are the ones that get really down into the, the fundamental aspects of the technology um, itself, because that really is the big shift in, 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 in what blockchain brings and kind of the, the, the broader organizational change that it facilitates. Um, I do think, obviously, as the regulatory environment uh, matures, I think there is some sort of sorting that's, that's still happening, right? So there are sort of certain classifications of uh, cryptocurrencies that are subject to sort of securities rules. Um, and then there are sort of others that are not quite in that space and understanding kind of the difference um, is important, uh, both for founders and for users. Um, but that itself is evolving, right? Um, I think as uh, these regulatory body, bodies sort of get greater familiarity and sort of understand this space more, I think the regulations themselves um, are going to change as we go forward. And that itself is going to affect the economics. You know, the other big thing I think, uh, and we've seen this recently, right, with uh, with uh, our, our, our friend or everybody's friend, Elon Musk, right? Uh, um, I think it's just the, the, the energy considerations around this uh, technology. I think that's a big one, right? Um, you know, some of the work that is going on right now to sort of create this shift from um, proof of work towards much more sort of uh, proof of stake to, to manage the energy consumption that, that goes along with um, mining these cryptocurrencies. So I think there, again, is a place where the economics itself will uh, will likely change as um, as we go forward and as we sort of figure out these additional solutions. I, I truly think that's like, I mean, really helpful and think, yeah, thank you for this entire conversation. It's, uh, it's opened my mind to, and I'm pretty sure it'll have a great effect on our listeners as well. So, yes, I'd like to thank you for your time and all the advice, Absolutely. all the points you've put in. Absolutely. And, I, you know, before, you know, we sign off here, I, I do want to make a plug for just founders everywhere, even ones that don't yet know that they're founders or that they will be founders. Um, you know, when I think back to, you know, the genesis of the current wave of uh so platform businesses and, you know, marketplaces and the like, right? You sort of look at the conditions that were there at that time. We were kind of coming through the aftermath of the, uh, the Great Recession, right? And so that kind of created conditions, the technology and the broader ecosystem was sort of ripe and mature for a range of startups that are now household names uh, to really sort of launch. You know, I really do think through this pandemic, we're at a very similar moment, right? That is, given sort of the economic conditions uh, that many people are still facing, that you have people who are either out of work but have had that great idea that they've, they've wanted to do but never got around to doing, and people who are employed who are sort of saying, you know, we're looking around and saying, is this really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life? Or do I want to go out and start that great, you know, that, that idea I've been toying with 
on the side. I do think that this is one of those moments. Why right? I think there's some research that uh, that has shown that uh, through this pandemic, I think it's through the uh, NBER, right, uh, National Bureau of Economic Research, that has talked about this idea that the number of uh, startups itself has really ramped up uh, through this pandemic, right? You had a lot of people who were at home and had time to really sort of reflect on things. And I think part of that breakthrough is both the shock, the economic shock of this moment, but also the maturation of the broader ecosystem. And, you know, we were talking before uh, we got started here about uh, the sort of low code um, movement itself, right? I think that has moved, moved, removed a lot of the barriers, I think, that founders face in trying to put some product together uh, to test those ideas out and to see if there's a sort of willing market for, for those ideas. And so, you know, I would encourage founders out there to take that leap of, leap of faith um, and believe in themselves. It doesn't mean go quit your job today, you know, get something together and make sure you have some, some validation uh, before you do this. But I think the cost to at least try this out is so much lower than it's ever been. And that to me makes it a, makes it a really exciting time, both for founders, but also for us as society, right? I mean, I think we all win when we have founders going out there and, uh, um, and, and, and trying these solutions for how to make our lives better as society. Allah was truly in way. I think one thing for sure is that there's a lot of scope for founders and the way things are progressing now. Possibly everyone can become a founder. I truly be- believe in what of I'll just quote Nawaz Ravikant here. He says that everyone is a creator or a founder in the next five to ten years. Probably not five, maybe ten years. And I think that it truly adding to the vision and is through this conversation, I hope, at least, even if not several, at least one or two people take up the idea that they can do something, they can affect change and actually pick up something from this. And I just like to thank you for the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for anybody who's interested in what that might look like, you know, um, there are some tools out there, but I'll make a plug for um, Apps Without Code. Uh, Tara Reed, not the actress, there's another Tara Reed. Um, who's sort of talked extensively about this and actually has sort of built out a company that, that helps people who want to learn about building apps without code.